Hello and welcome to Wibbly Wobbly Chatty Watty, the ultimate Doctor Who rewatch podcast. I'm your host, Dean, and as always, I'm joined by my business associate and friend, Andrea. Hi, Dean. How are you today? I'm good, thanks. I would just want to, um, at the start of this podcast, I'd like to give a quick mention to all our fans. I'd like to thank them all for reaching us two million listens. Really? Wow, I didn't know we'd reached that. No, I haven't checked. I just, I just assume we have. This week, um, we're talking about Season 1, Episode 9, The Empty Child, Part 1 of a two-parter. Uh, why don't we just get right into it this week? Oh yes, let's just dive into that swimming pool that we call Stephen Moffat's Little Writing Cupboard. Hey, don't give away the information I'm going to be sharing with our listeners. Oh yeah, whoops. Every week, Dean and I like to condense the content of the episode that we're going into depth for this podcast into one mere sentence so what was your sentence dean london is being terrorized by a small child who is hospitalizing people because he is lost i mean that's quite extreme we'll go into this in more depth but (laughs) what a stroppy kid yeah seriously what a stroppy kid what's your sentence summary andrea my sentence summary is this dean are you my mummy that was a pretty pants sentence summary. And I'm just going to move swiftly past it. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I summarised this episode. If you're telling me that that is not the most iconic part of this episode, then you, you were watching Boomtown. Um, we'll talk about Boomtown in two weeks. But right now, I want to talk about this episode, which was written by Stephen Moffat, the first episode of Doctor Who ever to be written by him. Many more to come. He does, of course, later become showrunner. And it was directed by James Hawes, who after this directs four more episodes of Doctor Who. It's Doctor Dances, Christmas Invasion, New Earth, and School Reunion. So quite close to each other, he directs some Doctor Who episodes. And this episode was broadcast on the 21st of May, 2005. Do you know what you were doing then, Andrea? Well, I wasn't dying, but maybe someone else was. Well, in fact, the 21st of May, 2005 was a big night for TV. Oh, It was the 50th Eurovision Song Contest. Two of my favourite things, John Barrowman and Eurovision, all in one night. Wow. I thought you'd enjoy that. And also, it was the English FA Cup final. It was Arsenal versus Manchester, and Arsenal won 5-4. Wow, close. Actually, quite a lot of goals. Do you not (laughs) see... I enjoyed you trying to talk about football. I'd be a great football commentator, and no one could tell me otherwise. Wow. That was quite a close game. Lots of goals. Uh, yeah. Do you know what city this game of football was played in? Oh, that's that's a tough one. Would it have to be from... I'm going to guess Manchester. It was Cardiff. Damn it. Why Why would you ask me that on a Doctor Who podcast if it wasn't <laughs> Cardiff? I'm not with it. I'm very sorry. I love Cardiff. Good for Cardiff. Yeah. So this is the bit I normally tell a joke because Andrew has a section she likes to call fun facts and then I'll make the joke saying, oh, they might not be fun. I'll decide whether they're fun or not. So do you want to just share us your facts or whatever? Whoa, you really just shot me down there. But yes, I would love to share them with our audience of two million people. Thank you again for listening in. And you, of course, my favourite business associate. Working titles for this episode included World War II and An Empty Child, which would have been a reference to the show's very first episode in 1963, which was, of course, 
and an earthly child. That's good. I enjoy both of those names. I think I would have... I don't know if World War Two would have been better than this episode name, but I think An Empty Child would also be better than this episode's name. So what do you think? Let's get into these names. That's an interesting point of view that you have there. I think I like the title. Maybe An Empty Child would have been better because of that reference to the first ever episode. But I prefer them both to World War Two, just because, well, we end up with World War Three. I thought, is that not just the reference, though? Is it not like when they nearly called the long game Adam because it's the whole reference thing and they nearly called Smith and Jones Martha? There's a fact for you. Did they really? Yeah, yeah, I read that the other day. Oh, I just, it sounded like something you could have made up on the spot, but what do I know? But I get that it's a reference, but I personally think that you should have more of a variety of names in a series. And also, I think An Empty Child or The Empty Child is quite a cool, chilling name, although it does allow for Nancy, which we'll obviously talk about later, it does allow for her to say, he's empty when describing Jamie. And I've always thought no one would actually say that, and it's always jarred with me because of it, because it's such an obvious reference to the title have i ever told you about the game huzzah you have not basically it's when you go to a cinema and like action movies specifically have a trend of like saying the name of the movie in the very dramatic way during the movie and what you're supposed to... so here's an example in the movie suicide squad which isn't very good there's a moment where will smith goes what are we some kind of suicide squad which is obviously a very bad moment in that movie. But what you're supposed to do is if you're watching a movie in the cinema and they say the name of the movie, you need to stand up and shout, huzzah, very loudly. How did I not know about this game already? It sounds brilliant. Yeah, I've never done it. I'm too scared. (laughs) I shall move on to our next fun fact. And that is that the next time trailer comes after the end credits in The Empty Child, which arguably was in response to criticism about Aliens of London, where the credits came straight after the cliffhanger and therefore defeated the object of the cliffhanger because you immediately saw how they got out of the tricky situation that they were in. So what do you make of that? Makes sense. Pretty stupid for them to do that in um, Aliens of London. So it just doesn't make that much sense for you to do it in the first place. Do you think someone would have mentioned that? but at least they've rectified their mistake. Exactly. Well done, Doctor Who, for being so big and bold and recognising your own mistakes. Yeah. My next fun fact is this. In this episode, Rose becomes the first character in the revival era to ask the iconic question, Doctor Who. Wow, almost in sync there. I often think that if you're an actor or actress, whatever you want to be called, if you go through a Doctor Who script that you're obviously part of and you see that your character has that line if that were me i'd be doing star jumps what a great line jumps is that your celebration it is now now. (laughs) you're like yes i win one two two." (laughs) just painting that image for all of you an insight into my life and into my own private celebrations this episode received the 2006 hugo award for best dramatic presentation short form 
and it beat Dalek and Father's Day to it. If you had been in control of those awards, which episode of those three, or four if you include the Doctor's dances as well, which of those episodes would you have awarded the Best Dramatic Presentation Short Form Hugo Award of 2006 to? Oh, see, it's dramatic. So I think Dalek's a better episode. But if we're going on just the dramatisation, I'd have to give it to Father's Day over any of these episodes. I would agree, because whilst Dalek and the Empty Child slash the Doctor dances are very good, and especially Dalek is incredibly dramatic, and we see that angry side of the Doctor, as we've talked about numerous times, Father's Day also works on its own and is very character-driven and emotional so i agree yeah yeah but stephen moffat has been nominated many times well his works have for that award i believe that blink the girl in the fireplace science in the library slash the forest of the dead they've all been nominated for those awards in the past so good he's for obviously, him. yeah good for stephen moffat and talking about stephen moffat stephen took the name tudler which we hear when referred to the tudler warship he took that from the Indian Bangladeshi fusion restaurant where the Doctor Who writers of Series 1 used to discuss their scripts. Ain't that uh, funny? Yeah, I want to put some bugs in that restaurant. <laughs> Are we talking earwigs or... Like like what? microphones. Oh, those kind of bugs. Yeah, they're my favourite types of insects, microphones. And finally, my final fun fact is also to do with the man himself, Stephen Moffat, and how when he became showrunner, he liked to pain us with painful deaths and basically torment us as an audience. And yet this episode, his very first Doctor Who episode, is the first one of the revived series to feature no deaths. What a lovely episode it is. You know, I don't want to watch people dying all the time unless they're called Adam. Amen to that, my sister. But at the same time, you do see... <laughs> at the same time, you do see Dr. Constantine, you know, turn into a gas mask zombie. So that's not exactly nice. He comes back, but... at least. Spoiler alert. We don't know that at this point, do we? No, well, I do, because I, I know what happens in the other episode because I've watched it before. Oh, what do you do that for? Anyway, I think it's time for our next section. I'll meet you there. In this section, Andrew and I like to present each other with some trivia in the form of a little quiz. And this week, I have organised the quiz. And like I have done in the past, I've got all my questions around one theme. Last time it was Simon Pegg. Any guesses what it is today? Boomtown. It's actually Captain Jack Harkness. Oh, yes. What a legend. Yeah, well, let's see how much you know about him, shall we? Oh, dear. You ready for question number one? I think so. Captain Jack appears in 40 episodes of Torchwood, 26 novels, 32 short stories, and 39 comics. But how many episodes of Doctor Who does he appear in in total? Is it 9, 10, 11, or 12? I will give you no time to count them in your head. Are you including... This episode, yes, I'm counting up until the present, including this episode. Including this episode and the Doctor Dances? Yes. Oh, did you say 13 was an option? 9, 10, 11 or 12. Oh, I'm going to go 12 then. You would be correct. Well done. 
Uh, next, I have a couple questions about Classic Who for you. See how well you deal with these. Oh dear, but John Barrowman wasn't in Classic oh, Who. I've got my questions ready. Um, Captain Jack Harkness is the first openly LGBT Doctor Who companion, but which of these classic Doctor Who companions has never since been outed as LGBT or was never planned to be LGBT? Was was it Ace, Leela, Grace Holloway, or Nissa? I'm going to say Grace Holloway because if I'm right, she's the one from Doctor Who the movie. And I don't feel like many people would revisit that character. You are correct. And yes. there's great logic. Basically, funny story behind this episode. I was reading about LGBT characters in Doctor Who and I found out that Ace in the season 26 serial survival um, was almost written as a lesbian. And I thought, oh, that'd be a good question. I'll ask which Doctor Who companion was nearly LGBT. So I give three other options and I went, oh, I better check the other three. And I find out that both Leela and Nyssa have um, been since said to be LGBT or suggested to be LGBT, which I thought was quite interesting. Yeah, that is. Yeah, that is. I think that is interesting. Well done. Fun fact. So Leela in the Time War Volume 3, which came out this year in 2020, she was said to raise a child with another woman. It was going to say that this was her wife, but they left it um, purposely ambiguous. Also in 2020, Nyssa, um, in the story Farewell Sarah Jane by Russell T. Davis, established that classic companions Tegan and Nyssa have become a couple living in Australia by the time of Sarah Jane Smith's funeral. How did I miss that? I, I watched that. <laughs> Farewell Sarah Jane thing. I have no recollection of that. Yeah. How interesting. So there you go. So looking through the list, there are more companions than this that since in books or whatever have been suggested. Are you ready for question three? I am putting my question three hat on. Yes, let's go. In this episode, Captain Jack is said to be a time agent. What episode were time agents first mentioned? Was it the talons of Wang Chang? The Invasion, The Claw of Axos, or The Seeds of Doom? See, I've obviously heard of all of them, but I don't know what happens in any of them except for The Invasion, where the unit appear for the first time, so I don't feel like they'd introduce unit and time agents at the same time, but I could be wrong. I'm going to go for The Talons of Wen Chang. You, you would be correct again. Well done. Woo, the other I'm three on a episodes, roll. The other three episodes, as you suggested, all feature unit. The invasion being their first appearance. Okay. I've got one more question and then a bonus question for you, okay? I think this question's a bit easy, so I hope you get it right. Although he is introduced as a companion in this episode, John Barrowman's name isn't added to the opening credits. Which episode is his name first added in? Is it The Doctor Dances, Boomtown, Utopia, or It's Never Added? Well, I know it is added because he's in the Stolen Earth slash Journey's End. When they all come back, I'm pretty certain. That's the great opening credits right there. Yeah. All those names in a row, all those fantastic names. But I know it's not The Doctor Dances and did you say Boomtown? Boomtown. For the other yeah. one? And I know it's not that one. 
So I'm going to say Utopia. You would be correct. Well done. Right. It makes sense because he is yeah. as close to another companion as can be. And by this point, it makes more sense when he returns to add his name in because you know that he's an important central character. Mm-hmm. Whereas in series one, you don't know how long he's going to last because Adam didn't last long, did he? Oh, thank God. Okay, you ready for the bonus question? Yes, I am. You're going to be annoyed at me for this question. Oh, no. Because it's not very nice. <laughs> Earlier on, I told you how many different forms of media Captain Jack has appeared in. But how many comics did I say he has appeared in? Was it 26, 32, 39, or 40? This is just you trying to create a case for me not listening to you. <laughs> Which, to be fair, it's working because I can't remember. But... 32 rang a bell because it's a number and I've heard of it, so I'm going to say it. You would be incorrect. It was 39. Oh, no. No. Lost your clean streak. So you said 32. That's because there was 32 short stories, 26 novels, and 40 episodes of Torchwood. Crikey. So what was the the right answer? It was 39. I should listen to you more, but if I did, I'd just hit all the insults that passed me by. Hey, you suck. Now it's time for our next section. In every episode of our podcast, Dean likes to enlighten our audience, all two million of you, with his own summary of the plot and setting for this episode. So obviously this time he will be focusing on the empty child, because otherwise it wouldn't make any sense. Whenever you're ready, Dean. Before I start, I have a bone to pick with you, Andrea. Is it a thigh bone, an elbow? Haha, <laughs> very funny. No, this is serious, okay? Um, it's occurred to me that over time our podcast has evolved to us each having our own section. Me explaining the plot and you um, giving us your improvements. And I realise my section is to make me look like a big dumb person and your section is all hoity-toity smart pants time with Andrea. To be fair, you always twist improvement, so I sound like a cruel, <laughs> hypocritical idiot. I'm just saying, maybe I'm smart, and these sections don't make me sound smart. You're not helping yourself now. <laughs> They're in the TARDIS, flying through the sky, move alert, something's gone wrong. Oh no, they need to follow this crashing ship, which actually isn't crashing. And it crash lands on Earth and the doctor gets out and he's like, well, we've got to go find this thing. It crashed here within the last month, probably. And Rose is like, solid. And the doctor's like, let's go into this building. And Rose is like, solid. So they walk into the room and the doctor gets, but Rose didn't walk into the room. I lied because she sees a small child with a gas mask on when she goes up to help him. And she climbs a rope and then the rope carries her away because the rope's attached to a blimp. And now she's hanging in the sky because why you're thinking, why is there a blimp in London? The doctor walks into the room and he goes, has anyone seen anything fall from the sky in the last month? Anything? Any guys? And they all start laughing at him. He's like, why are they laughing? I haven't said anything funny. I haven't done anything funny. I'm not doing a stand-up comedy routine. I am not doing a little comedy skit. I am not performing one of my sketches i have not said anything funny and it's because it's world war ii at the moment not at the moment now at the moment it's it's we're in a peaceful period while there is a global pandemic going on which is an issue but it's different from a global conflict and in some ways better anyway so world war ii is happening for the doctor right now not metaphorically (laughs) literally maybe okay um 
and when I mean we're in a period of peace, I mean just here in the UK, because overseas there'll be conflicts and over in the Middle East and in... Um, get on with it! Anyway, which is like, oh, I get why it's funny, because we're in the middle of the Blitz. Speaking about the Blitz, Rose is hanging from a blimp while bombs are being dropped. At least she's on the blimp and she's like, oh no, I better hold on, even though I'm not. Okay, that's what I had to say about that. Captain Jack Harkness, a cool guy who I am now just introducing to you for the first time, is with the bunch of the RAF guys and he's looking in his binoculars and being a bit of a perv and he's like, wow, what's Rose doing up there? Hanging? And also she's got a nice butt. And he goes to save her with a tractor beam. Not a tractor beam. A tractor beam? Are they called tractor beams? He, gets, he just gets on a tractor. <laughs> and he's like, and I'm coming for you, Rose. <laughs> he's on a spaceship. He's on a spaceship and he saves her and they have a bit of flirty, flirty time. Meanwhile, the doctor leaves the club and he's like, well, drat. But the TARDIS phone starts ringing. He doesn't answer it. And Nancy appears. Who's a girl? I'll talk more about her. She's there and she's a bit British and she talks like this. Um, and she's like, don't answer the phone. And the doctor's like, why not? That phone shouldn't ring. It's not even wired into anything. It ain't make no sense. And the doctor doesn't answer. And Nancy disappears for some reason. I'm not sure why. And then it cuts to Nancy, who, when every, well, the blitz happen, people who are in their houses go into their bomb shelters. So Nancy and her little gang of orphan street children I don't know if that's a phrase. Go into the house and eat the roast dinner that this family had prepared for themselves, but they eat it and the doctor shows up and they're like, ah! And Nancy's like, it's all right. And the doctor hangs out with the kids, tells some jokes, has a good time. And he's a bit like, whoa, so what's landed here? And Nancy's like, shh. And then a child appears in a gas mask, the same one Rose saw. And he goes, oh, you my mummy, I'm a bit lost, mate. And the doctor's like, oh, why don't we let in? And Nancy's like, no, all the children run away. And the doctor's like, okay, I'll just go and touch him. No, you can't touch him, doctor, because then you'll die. And the doctor's like, okay, what crash landed here? Nancy was like, I'll show you, but you have to go and talk to Constantine, Dr. Man first. And the doctor's like, okay, fair enough. Meanwhile, Rose and Jack are having a little dance in front of Big Ben on top of their spaceship. And it turns out Jack is a time agent. He's not actually in the RAF, hence why he's got a spaceship. And he's got something to sell them because he has found a ship to sell the time agents because Rose told him that he's, she, he's, he, she's a time agent with the Doctor. So they go and find the Doctor. And now the Doctor's hanging out with Constantine and there's a whole room full of these little gas mask people with the gas masks welded to their face of identical injuries. And the Doctor's like, that makes no sense. And Constantine's like, yeah, if you touch them, that means you turn into them. Guess what? I touched one of them and then his face gets big and he gets a gas mask. And that's the last we see. Dr. Constantine and then Captain Jack and Rose appear and they're like loopy doopy doo and Captain Jack's like I'm a fraudster I I bake crashes and then I sell the crash and the doctor's like well we're fraudsters too because we're not actually time agents so this is a joke on you and then all the gas mask people get up and surround them and the gas mask people go actually doctor this is a joke on you because we're about to kill you and that's where the episode ends thank you for that nonsense I'm sure it makes everyone's day and is the highlight of the podcast. What do you make of the setting, the World War II setting that we have here? Two, what a fun place to be, not in real life, but in media. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't expecting you to say that. Whenever you ask me these questions, I'm still in the mood that I am when I do this plot summary. is a bit hyper. 
So I'm going to respond in those ways. But let me finish with what I was saying. It's not fun to be there, I'm sure, despite the fact that I wasn't there and I can't answer definitively. And I've never been in a time of war because right now we are in a global pandemic. That's different from World War. And in a lot of ways, it's better. Although that's just localized to England, other places are currently in conflict like Lebanon or Syria. Get on with it, man. Anyway, fun times, what do you think? I think it's a good setting. I think that with settings such as this and in The Impossible Astronaut, you have the whole 1969 moon landing. Wow, I'm Thompson Delaware the third, and I have a husband. I remember this information about him because I've been reading about LGBT characters in Doctor Who all week, and I forgot he had a husband. And also, I appreciate Russell T. Davis's drive to include more LGBT people and people of color in Doctor Who. Thank you. A weird mixture of John Barrowman and Stephen Hawking that I never thought I'd hear. But thank you. As I was saying, I think that such settings, such as the moon landing, even the Empire State Building, the London Blitz, they're all sort of, they're more in the background because the story takes the forefront. Like everything that we see, all the action happens because of that setting. But you don't really notice the setting, if that makes any sense. Uh no, that's some sense, some not sense. I think I need to go have a sit down in between sections, so please can we move on? Yes. In this section, we like to go through our standout moments of the episode, just to share them with you and discuss them. Andrew, what's your first one? For my first standout moment is the fact that we see Rose dangling from a blimp in the middle of the Blitz and there are German planes all around her and bombs going off and she's there wearing her Spice Girl-esque Union flag top and it's all very funny. And also, if any of us were in that situation, it would be pretty terrifying. What do you think of that moment? It's pretty I funny. Mean, it does. it does look pretty terrifying, but also, to be honest, it looks pretty fake because she's just kind of hanging there, no wind at all affecting her, just kind of just chilling out in midair like three feet off the ground to begin with like just let go and then you would have been fine before that rope carried you away rose i do get your point but after i watched this episode i actually also watched the confidential for it and so i got to see a little bit of the making of it and i appreciate it more for having seen all the effort that went through it they shot her i think two or three times dangling from the blimp clearly not enough effort against a real backdrop and against a green screen. And so I appreciate it more for having that slightly extra information. Fair enough. I've got two stand-up moments that happened before this, I'm afraid. So you jumped the gun a little bit there. My first one would be just the, one of the doctor's line when they talk about milk. It's all the species in the world and it has to come from a cow. did make me laugh. <laughs> it's true. It's Yeah. Fair enough. And the other bit I really like is is the laughing because it's interesting. You're intrigued why what they're all laughing at. And it makes sense when you get the payoff at the end. I do really like that moment. I do find that setting of the nightclub, although that word has different connotations now, but the 1940s nightclub, a bit unsettling just because it's also... It's a weird mixture of cringiness and unsettling for me just because it's so, it's like a production that's been put on and it's quite 
fake in a weird way. I know everything's fake, obviously, although World War II did happen, apparently. But that is still a very funny moment. I love how he's just very bemused. He's like, would have fallen from the sky a couple of days ago, would have landed quite near here with a very loud bang. And then he realises, and it's hilarious. And also kind of sad because the bombs have become... yeah part of their everyday life it's not something that they see as unusual or bemusing or terrifying anymore speaking of this moment in the episode i have read a what i would consider a crackpot conspiracy theory online because obviously this episode is written by stephen moffat at one point the nightclub singer sings for nobody else gave me the thrill when i uphold silence still it had to be you and they thought this was a very early hint to silence falls when they say when i uphold silence still what do you make of that though because that's very in advance for him to think of that it's not real because it doesn't he doesn't they don't even say silence will fall they say when i uphold silence still i'm all one for delving into things that aren't there but that's just too yeah i read that while doing research for my trivia and i was like no thank you okay (laughs) My next question for you, I'm, it's another complaint. I do enjoy this episode, but I think it gets too much praise, which we'll get onto later. How come Nancy just disappears after she tells the doctor not to answer the phone? Like, she's just a normal person. Where does she go? And why didn't she help the doctor? This is something I wanted to bring up as well. She's not a ghost. She's not part of the weirdness that's going on here. Well, she is, but she's almost a victim of it. She's on the outside of what's happening with the gas mask zombies and the physical injuries as plague and all that. So she's not got any supernatural qualities whatsoever. She's very much a normal Londoner and that's almost the point of her character and why she's meant to be, sorry for this horrible word, relatable. But it makes no sense. I get why Stephen Moffat's done it because at this point in the episode we're wondering Oh, who's she? Is she an alien? What about the phone? Oh, it's all very ghost-like. In a way, it almost carries more of a ghost spiritual feeling than I feel the Unquiet Dead does for quite some time. But obviously we eventually find out that she is just an ordinary young woman and therefore it has no real logic behind it. So I just find it funny now when I rewatch it because why would you tell someone not to listen to the phone and then just disappear without even saying goodbye or explaining further it, it's not great it's a bit whack it's a bit whack yeah it just like what did i just imagine her the doctor looks away and then suddenly nancy's like i must go and then just sprints away and the doctor like, it. She's like <laughs> yes i did it i want to see that it just didn't make much sense to me okay my next moment is the tractor beam uh, when Captain Jack jumps on his tractor and saves Rose. I think it's a weird effect, but it's a good moment. Yeah, and I love how he tells her to turn off her mobile phone because nobody believes that, and that's what she says. And I feel like this episode, if anything, like you, I'm not as big a fan of this episode as a lot of people are. And I feel like if you ask someone who's not a Doctor Who fan what episodes they remember, they'll mention this or Blink because of the iconic scariness exactly but i feel that's a bit it's a bit overrated for that reason not that i have anything massively against this episode it's just a bit too praised as you said but 
all that said, this episode does highlight Stephen Moffat's strength of dialogue. I feel that's something he carried through in the form of the 11th Doctor when he became head runner. He's very good with funny dialogue. And that's evidence of it there when Rose is in the tractor beam. But when we're talking about unfunny dialogue written by Stephen Moffat, why don't we jump right into his ship and talk about their weird flirting? Yes, let's address that. Like, we've talked about this before, and it really peeves me off that, for whatever reason, so many different writers in this series think Rose can't function by herself, so she needs a man to... um, to bounce off of for her to work as a character, whether it's Mickey or it's Adam or it's Captain Jack. And there's just, it's just weird. And there's the weird moment where Rose hands back the psychic paper and it's like, oh, you say you're very available. Like, shut up, Captain Jack. Okay, respect boundaries. And that's not something Captain Jack's ever very good at. No, that is, that is true. But... I would have to agree with your frustration. Why do they feel the need to pair her up with someone? She's such a strong character, predominantly in series two, and especially a strong female character, um, if we're talking through the feminist lens. And yet that's undermined somewhat by her origins in series one, where she's constantly coupled with male characters. I'm all for having Captain Jack as part of the TARDIS team, but why do you need that flirtatious beginning between him and Rose. That doesn't continue through any episodes, not even Boomtown, which is two episodes on from here. So it seems very forced, not quite as forced, I'd argue, as it is with Adam, because Captain Jack's so smooth and seductive in his character, so you can almost understand why Rose is being lulled into that. But from Rose's side, it seems very abrupt and this will steer slightly into characters but I almost feel that Rose is unnecessarily and for no reason whatsoever aggressive towards the Doctor in this episode. Yeah I want to talk about that more later so we're just gonna leave that. I understand, I understand, I understand. Anyway we're not we're not saying Captain Jack shouldn't be included in this episode we're just saying don't have him be a tool of seduction in the episode give him well, not for Rose anyway. It's fine with the other soldiers and stuff. <laughs> it's just, oh, just lay off it a bit. I, a thought has just occurred to me, and I think, and I don't think you're going to be very happy about this, but technically, does Rose never escape the lean of a male protagonist? Because in series two, she's got the doctor to lean on the whole time. You could argue that, but I would, in opposition of that, say, that she already has the Doctor in this series. In my mind, she goes from being with Mickey to the Doctor to Adam to Jack to the Doctor. And so we don't have any faffing around with her going to other men in series two. And it matters more because whilst she's only just met Jack, she's only just met Adam, and they're forced into some kind of relationship. With the Doctor, they've had time to become friends, to become a pair who save the world together and she sees how lonely he is and she becomes that support for him and so it means more and yes you could argue if you were very strongly feminist that she doesn't escape that male crutch and that is something that 
is annoying when you see it repeatedly throughout portrayals of women. I see that a lot in things that I study in film and it really frustrates me because you just, I never had a female character to look up to as a young person. I always wanted to be the doctor because I found that the companions were always presented as pretty. I wouldn't say that Rose is that bad because she becomes a strong character in series two. And I like the romantic elements between her and the 10th doctor. So I'm kind of biased in saying, no, it's fine. <laughs> All fine. She doesn't, she does escape that male crutch, but it's a good argument. Yeah, it's one we will, I'm sure, explore more in the future. But moving back into stand-up moments before we um, go too far away, I really like the scene of the Doctor with all the, um, as I called them earlier on, orphan street children. I think he's very sweet to them. I think we see a side of him we actually haven't seen before, that he's good with kids and he's quite funny in that kind of way. And I do really enjoy it. Yeah, that entire scene around the table, the line, I think it's something like the Doctor says, I can't tell if it's Marxism in action or a West End musical, which I find very funny because this episode has really strong links to Oliver Twist. It's almost like this entire series just wants to be a big Dickens book. (laughs) But it's very funny. And you're right, he's almost tender and like a child in that environment. And that's something that I really enjoy seeing in the 11th Doctor. And I'd say that's almost the 11th Doctor's thing. And you see that side of the Doctor in 9 here. Yeah, it's good stuff. Uh, I just enjoy the whole dynamic he's got here. And then when the kid shows up, this is supposed to be the scary scene of the episode. And it's not just the fact that I'm an adult and I'm not particularly frightened by Doctor anymore, but I don't think I ever would have found this scene terrifying. It just seems a bit um, tame to me, but maybe that's just me trying to show how masculine I am because toxic masculinity is a thing. Wow, we're really getting into gender representation here. Wow, how grown up of us. I actually was scared of this when I was a kid. I'm not anymore. And I think that surprises my family a bit because I'm normally, I normally jump at anything, (laughs) but I know what's coming up. I don't find it scary. I don't think there's anything in Doctor Who I find particularly scary now. I find things chilling, but that's not the same sort of impact. And so for me, this episode, I think overall has lost a bit of impact because I'm not seeing it through that childish, terrified, first time watching it lens. But it's still a good scene. I love the panic when Nancy's saying to the kids, did you close the door? Did you close the door? And it really changes that scene. It's a bit like the dynamic of the conversation with Rose and Gwyneth in The Unquiet Dead, where it goes from being really sweet and cuddly and funny to being quite intense and scary and sinister. And so you have the Doctor being laughed at by the kids which is funny in itself because they see him almost on their level which is endearing as hell but then you have the same thing a child a child that if he hadn't gone through all the shebang with the gas masks and the nano genes as we'll get onto he would have been laughing at that table with all those children but he's an outsider because of what's happened to him and he's scary and you get that straight away from their panic alone yeah I feel like I need to clarify what I said. I'm not saying, oh, if you were scared of that, you're a big scaredy cat and you're an idiot. Well, you, well, you were. Well, you were, because toxic masculinity. I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it's not the kind of thing I 
would have found scary i don't think and it's just not effective fear as so much other stuff you see in doctor who and i think it's very overhyped as being a scary episode because i don't think it is anywhere near as scary as an episode like blink or even i used to be very scared of tooth and claw and i think that episode's more scary than this that terrified me i remember my dad saying let's go watch tooth and claw and he shut the curtains because he knew that I'd find it scary. I had nightmares <laughs> about that werewolf so often. And Queen Victoria, just her old face. No, that's a joke. I'm not attacking that actress. Here at Wibbly Wobbly, we hate old people. That's another of our slogans that we're adding to the long list. But what I was going to say is that I, going on slightly from that standout moment of around the table, when the doctor's trying to find out why Nancy's so terrified of this one gas mask child, the doctor explains how he understands about being the only child left out yeah, in the cold. That's the bit that did get me a bit. It was a bit sad. Because the doctor wants to help this child. He wants to understand and help this child because he sees the similarities, albeit they're twisted because of the situation. He sees the similarities between him and this child, who's the outsider for very obvious, for very obvious reasons. And it's very sad. and It kind of gets lost in the terror of that scene that they're trying to create <laughs> you, you think there's terror in that scene you're such a baby another standout moment of mine which probably isn't even worth going back to talk about is when the doctor picks up that cat before the phone starts ringing and he chats with that cat and it's another situation we see him with cats we see him well a singular cat we see him with children what a softy eccleston is in this episode and i love it and we know Tennant doesn't like cats because of um, Fear Her, the season two episodes where he expresses uh, um, dislike for them. But that's only because of his experiences in New Earth. That's true. Let's be honest. I think we'd all dislike cats if humanoid cats had tried to kill us in a hospital disease situation. I just hate cats because I've seen the movie Cats. Now that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> I'm never watching it again so don't even try and get me to talk about that movie i i won't don't you worry but also just when that phone rings it's very chilling and you've already spoken about this in in terms of nancy randomly disappearing but the when it actually rings i think watching it back and knowing that it's a disconnected phone you're like what the hell is going on here what the bloody hell does that phone think it's doing I know, right? Skipping ahead of the table scene and all that shebang. I've said shebang twice, now three times, in one podcast. That's bold. I've said it a lot this week, actually. I don't know why. But another standout moment for me is the Doctor's World War II speech, as I call it, when he's telling Nancy about the mouse in front of the lion that is Great Britain. And I've got it here. I'm not going to do an accent, but I just want to read it. We both wrote down the line. Whoa, are you serious? Yeah. I suggest that we try and read it at the same time, but I don't think anyone wants to hear that. 1941, right now, not very far from here, the German war machine is rolling up the map of Europe, country after country, falling like dominoes. Nothing can stop it. Nothing. Until one tiny, damp little island says, no, no, not here. A mouse in front of a lion. You're amazing, the lot of you. Don't know what you do to Hitler, but you frighten the hell out of me. What great dialogue, going back to the fact that Stephen Moffat writes some great lines. And 
I felt it was just very empowering. And I got quite emotional thinking back to the reality of World War II. It's quite patriotic. Exactly, very patriotic. And thinking of those who sacrificed themselves. But this episode is very unique, going back to setting. In fact, we're all over the place this time, but that's good. Fluidity is good. But Just like Captain Jack, fluidity is good. Exactly. But this episode focuses on the civilians and how they're affected by the war. And I think that's something... And a gas mask zombie. And a gas mask zombie. Yes, that's true. But this quote, therefore, it doesn't just take on the patriotism of the soldiers who are fighting to save country after country, but it also takes on the sacrifice that millions of people made. And it hit me, to be honest. Yeah, we are getting real deep this week. Yeah. With wibbly wobbly, but that's what we're here for. Deep analysis of everything about this episode. And I think you're right. It's a very powerful line. Very patriotic, you're right. And you just don't see a lot of stuff like that, especially in series one of Doctor Who. So well done, Steve. It's almost like he takes a step back from the normal script writer role. And it's not just the Doctor talking, it's more... Narration. The creative crew, Doctor Who talking to the nation about yeah, yeah. World War II. It's very, very good. Leaning on the fourth wall, I think you could call it. Yeah, not quite causing it to collapse, but... A lot of lineage involved, okay. <laughs> I want to talk about the hospital scene now. You all good to skip that far ahead? Oh yeah, that's where I want to skip. I, although I don't skip down hospital corridors or anything. I'm not like that person. I do. I enjoy the effect of Dr. Constantine turning into a gas mask on me. I just did it with my hands there for Andrea of elongating my face. You look more like an ood, to be honest. No, it's a good effect. And it's a good moment. You kind of see it coming because he's all, <clears throat> I think I'm dying. And it's quite sweet conversation between these two of the doctor being a doctor and talking about medical stuff and trying to help the people. While the other doctor is all like, I had a grandchild and daughter once and now they're dead. And the doctor's like, me too. That I think for me, that's the second biggest heart-wrenching moment because I found it quite sad. I was like, this poor guy, you don't see this side of him, but you do get glimpses maybe like one or two a season of his remorse for the family he's lost because of course he did have a family all those years ago and it's one of those things about doctor who that never gets old the fact the fact that you're told so little about his past in the way that we don't know what family members he had we don't know how many children he had and who with it's a mystery and it keeps Doctor Who fresh because these hints that we get, as you said, a couple of times a series, keep us wondering, who is the Doctor? Because do we ever really yeah. know? And that takes us back to the title of the show as we love to come back to the titles of things. Because, you know, Doctor Who, who is he? Yeah, it's good. I like the remorse we see within the character. That makes me sound like a bit like a meanie, but um, <laughs> it's good stuff. Um, I've got the line here, it's Dr. Constantine says, before this war began, I was a father and a grandfather. Now I'm neither, but I'm still a doctor. And the doctor goes, yeah, I know the feeling, which is just how... The thing that makes this sad for me is just how 
matter-of-factly he says it he's accepted the fact and he's moved past it but obviously it still is with him and if you relate it to the 50th anniversary which is something i don't often do because i wish that eccleston had been in that 50th though i do appreciate john hurt's doctor if you think of it referring to that episode he lost his family but he was still the doctor that's almost as if saying that he lost his family as the war doctor he regenerated and then he decided that he was going to return to being the doctor because the whole point of the war doctor is that we don't have to change matt smith being the 11th doctor and so on because he's not numbered because he's not technically the doctor because he didn't class himself as a doctor wow clever get around that moffat but it's almost like when he regenerated, he, he almost tried to let go of that suffering because he no longer had that family that he could concentrate on being the Doctor again. And that's who the ninth Doctor is. He's very to the point, no domestics, let's just get on with it. I'm the Doctor, I can save people. What a, what a man he is. We will get on to that soon because I'm out of stand-up moments, but I think you have some more to share with us. Well, kind of. You've already spoken about it, but I just want to say I feel that Dr. Constantine's transformation into a gas mask zombie is the most effective scene of the episode for me. It's pretty horrific. Nothing else nowadays, when I rewatch this episode, terrifies me or even makes me jump. But it's pretty, not gory because you don't see blood and stuff, but it's pretty chilling to see his so face long. transform. It's and so it works its way, the gas mask work its way up his throat. And the acting from Richard Wilson there is fantastic. And I think it's a really well cast role. And you don't really get to see how it happens until then. And you suddenly realise, wow, we don't want this to happen to any of the central characters because it looks bad. So it really hits. It really accentuates the danger that everyone is in. Yeah, yeah. Is that the, all of your standout moments? It is. I'm glad. So that means it's time for our next section. This is the section of the podcast where I introduce this section of the podcast. And the section I'm about to introduce is where we talk about the characters every week. And every week I introduce the same character first, but for comedic purposes i use the character's incorrect name and that incorrect name is doctor who but the correct name is doctor who what are your thoughts on doctor who this episode this is potentially one of my favorite versions of the ninth doctor that we have seen so far i still think that world war three's version is high up there for me but he's so funny we've already spoken about how we see him with both creatures of the children variety and the animal variety and it's a tender and comical a different comical side that we haven't seen yet and we get further insights as we've already said into the grief that he's experienced on a more personal level than perhaps we've been informed previously and although i'm opposed to the flirting in this episode i do enjoy seeing the doctor's almost macho response to captain jack's presence and how he is dismissive of him because of his evident moral corruption and how he's a con man. Though Jack contests that he had nothing to do with 
with what's going on here. The doctor keeps adamantly insisting that he is to blame. And I enjoy that sort of conflict that we see between the two characters. No, you're right. The doctor is a very good character in this episode. I enjoy his, uh, this is going to sound a bit harsh to Rose, but I enjoy him going at it alone in this episode because we haven't really seen that in the past. And like his interactions with these people, with the, with these other people that know nothing about him. And just, we see like a kindness in him. We don't see a lot of the time and a lot more of curiosity. That's definitely true. And it's something that we've, I would argue it is something we've seen a little bit because in the end of the world, he spends quite a lot of time without Rose. Yeah, that's true. But it's not executed as well in that episode. I don't count that episode as an episode. Well, I don't think it works as well in the end of the world because you want him to be with his new companion. That's very true. At this point, they're well cemented together. Exactly. So it's cool to see him go off on his own and everyone get introduced to him as the isolated, enigmatic, but witty character that he is. Yeah, okay. Now can we talk about Rose? And I want to have a bit of a rant here. Okay. It's a bit of a small detail, but it really grinds my gears that they've left such a grievous mistake in in this show. And it's her constant want for um, the Doctor to be more Spock. Yes. Has she never seen Star Trek before? Spock is the boring nerd character. And she's like, oh, can't you be more Spock and more adventurous? I honestly believe that in the script, Stephen Moffat wrote, can't you be more Kirk or can't you be more Captain Kirk, who is the lead in Star Trek for those who are not in the know. He's the cool one. He's like uh, a bad boy. He's suave and he's, he's, he's a pretty badass and whoever was reading the script was like oh but steve nobody knows who captain kirk is just change it to spock and he's like fair enough but it makes no sense in the episode when he's like stop being so boring and start being more like spock this famously calculating and cold and boring character and it also jars with me because she's so unnecessarily aggressive about him not being spock enough yeah and I understand why Stephen Moffat's done this, because it does pave the way for the introduction of Captain Jack Harkness, because as soon as he's in the episode, Rose is like, finally, a professional. Finally, we've got someone like Spock, because we all know how, um, how suave and um, flirtatious Spock is. That's what he's well known for. They're his defining character traits. I realise this is the most nerdy thing to get annoyed about because I'm like, in this Doctor Who episode where they reference <laughs> Star Trek, they're making the wrong reference about Spock. It just <laughs> Rose, maybe you should be more Spock because then you'd be smarter and you'd know who Spock is. Well said, Dean. But it's just a way for Rose to be happy that Captain Jack has qualities that the Doctor doesn't. We don't see her feel any sort of disappointment or frustration with the Doctor about who he is, how he operates, his sonic screwdriver, the fact that he doesn't scan for alien tech. We see none of that in any of the previous episodes, so it doesn't make sense. If this was an episode on its own, maybe, but it's not. It does jar with you, you're right. And like, I'm getting too caught up on this Spock thing, where you're right, the thing you're talking about is a bigger mistake in this episode. But but 
like literally it wouldn't have even been that hard for Stephen Moffat to instead of changing it to Spock you could have been like ah oh, if only you were more Han Solo because that doesn't make perfect sense in the world of Star Wars but at least it makes more sense than this rubbish she's spouting about Spock I'm not even a Star Trek fan okay I've I have a basic level knowledge of Star Trek and this annoys me <laughs> do you have any actual opinion on her as a character in this episode or is it all about the Spock oh, it's, it's really there's the one note I've written about her but of course the flirting is awkward and we've talked about this already about how as a character people feel the need to have a man for her to lean on because as soon as she stops flirting with Captain Jack of course they bring back Mickey and then when they get rid of Mickey again it's obviously the Doctor's finale so they have a whole back and forth between those two characters I'm not saying that's bad but just let her be her own woman for once in a while because because we need some strong female characters and I think they don't come for a while perhaps until Catherine Tate it's the first one we get, which is a funny thing to say, because, of course, when she's first introduced, she's not very nice at all. And it all revolves around her wedding day and how her to-be husband ruins her life. But it works. I think that kind of works because it's her learning to be independent and not needing to... The whole point of that is her learning not to rely on a man, which is something the writers really need to teach Rose in this series it does get better in series two and i think she's quite a strong character and while she's off screen and then we see her again in series four you know she's working for torchwood in the parallel world so there is a transformation but that's my main issue with series one rose she's randomly flirtatious and always attached to male characters yeah just rose just grow up a bit and be your own woman and also, you're fictional, so I don't blame you that much. Okay, I think it is time we talk about the man himself, John Barrowman. Perhaps, for me, the weakest Jack Harkness episode, apart from the new one, bloody hell. But I think you're supposed <laughs> to... <laughs> I think you're supposed to feel that way because he's supposed to come off as a bit unlikable because he's a con man, and then he changes into this different character, which we do end up really liking. So it doesn't jar with me, my dislike for him. Oh yeah, it's totally deliberate because that's sort of his story arc. He's never completely aligned with the Doctor's moral compass and that's where we part see... Part of the appeal though as well. Exactly, that's part of the appeal of their relationship but that's where we see in say Utopia when the Tenth Doctor is reunited with Jack there's some friction and he thinks that Jack's all wrong because... Rose has brought him back to life and he also resents his flirtatiousness and so there is always a little bit of friction there but also a massive respect but that only comes from the fact that initially he's introduced as a con man who doesn't have a moral compass like the doctor does he's partly responsible for what's going on in this episode all the tragic things that are happening in this episode and then through being with the doctor traveling with him and seeing the things that he does for the greater good Jack becomes a better person himself. So you need him to be at this point to appreciate him later. But I would agree, my least favourite Captain Jack. Also because if we're going to be feminist, let's also be, I don't know, meninist. 
feminism is about equal rights. Um, continue. Exactly. So let's talk about how he's also flung at Rose. I know it's part of his character and it's part that we all enjoy later on. It works better on his behalf, I think. It does. But I think we could have got that he's a seductive and suave gentleman from everything that we see before that and after they're flirting in his spaceship. You don't really need it. I get what you mean, but I, you, cut, you expect it from Captain Jack. Rose should know better. <laughs> I don't have much to say about Nancy, to be honest. I think we've mentioned all of, our, all of my comments on her. Have you got anything to add? Not much, except that I prefer her in the second part. Yeah, and that she's will better in the second be explored part. next week. But she's an inoffensive character. Yeah, she she's not a standout for good or bad, I think. Yeah. 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 So is it time for the most no. potential? Is it time now? Just wait a few seconds. Just just wait a few seconds. We'll all count to three in our heads now. Is it time now for the most pretentious section of the podcast? Every week at this point on the podcast, I'll tell a little joke about how Andrea made me um, make this section because she's a professional screenwriter, which she is, that's true, and how she is really pretentious, which she is, how she thinks she's better than Steve Moffat. And I think there's more of a basis for her being better than Stephen Moffat than there is for Russell T Davis because Stephen Moffat if you look at a lot of the writing he's done as a whole he's made some blunders especially in the later seasons of shows like Sherlock I'm getting off track this isn't a Sherlock podcast what would we call a podcast if it was a Sherlock podcast shibbly shobbly Sherlocky walky walky Thank you very much. We are already getting distracted, so let's get on with your improvements. What's your first improvement? I believe the pre-opening credits action is a bit too frantic to follow. It may just be me. I may just be losing concentration, although that would be very distressing. 30 seconds in. But it's all over the place. I actually find that Chris Eccleston's dialogue is quite quiet. And the camera's shaking all over the place. We're, t- we're talking about mauve. Why are we talking about mauve? No one ever talks about mauve on TV. Hey, I like the mauve movement. Never do that again. But it's just a bit too frantic. I don't think that's good for a section that's meant to hurl you into the rest of the action. Because I'm almost like, after the credits, what, what are they exploring? It might just be me, but I think some other people will also be a little bit amused by what's going on. My next improvement is that Rose, as we've already said a thousand times by now, is randomly aggressive towards the Doctor and she's all Spock, 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 Spock. And really, Spock isn't the appropriate character to be mentioning. Exactly, as we have established. Because of that, I also have to say that another improvement is also her forceful flirtation with Captain Jack. And obviously I'm not saying that it's just her, of course it's him. I also think that the laughing at the bar, whilst it's funny because of the Doctor's naivety, it goes on for too long. And as I've already said, the setting doesn't really work for me because it's almost a bit cringy and so obviously designed 
to be typical of a 1940s nightclub that it almost jars with me because it's a bit too false and fake and a bit unsettling. I don't know if that's just me, but maybe it's the extras. Let's blame the extras. That's what I always do when in doubt. I also think that Nancy disappearing, as we said, makes no sense. She's not a ghost. Or is she? Just leaving that with everyone. You look very shocked by that. This is something that we haven't spoken about, unlike all the other improvements that I've mentioned so far. So when Rose burns her hands on the rope of the blimp and Jack heals them with nanogenes, why does he have to wrap his cravat around her hands? Why do these super techie, super intelligent nanogenes need the help of a cravat from the 1940s? I mean, let's be real. We find out in the next episode that they're not the best things ever. Yeah, but it doesn't mean that they need a cravat to help them. I'm not very good at maths, but if I went into a maths exam, a cravat would not help me, okay? What if I wrote numbers on the inside of the cravat? Five, eight, eleven. I am not condoning cheating to our two million person audience. Thank you very much. Another improvement, it's a very specific line linked to the flirting between Jack and Rose. Rose says promises promises to him when he's trying to push forward his deal his con man deal and i'm just like where did that come from Moffat? were you really drunk were you listening to some romantic music what's going on inside your head it's just that line communicated to me that that's when the flirting went too far in my mind so that's why i have noted it as an improvement because get rid of it fix it as we like to say fix it And so my final point, since I've touched upon the flirting between Jack and Rose, and as you have so much in this episode, that we basically should not call it The Empty Child, we should call it Flirting with Dean and Andrea. Although that sounds like a weird guidebook to flirting that we shouldn't release. But since I've said that, that's obviously an improvement. But my final improvement is that the pace drops in the middle of this episode, I feel. You have the child, the empty child, aimlessly wandering the streets of London. You have the doctor following Nancy, aimlessly wandering the streets of London. You have Jack and Rose, aimlessly flirting over the streets of London, stood on his spaceship next to Big Ben, which we haven't spoken about, but I actually think it's quite a nice touch, being right next to Big Ben, which we obviously see in Aliens of London slash World War Three. And I like how he turns the clock on when she asks... What's the time? That's a funny touch. But I'm not talking about that because I'm being critical because this is my improvement section that Dean made me do. And so nothing really happens in the middle. We learn a few things about Jack's con deal, although we don't know it's con at the time. We learn a bit about the child from Nancy. But you could give us that information in less time. And so I feel like this episode overall, I don't enjoy as much as the second part, The Doctor Dances, because more happens in The Doctor Dances. And so that brings us to the end of the most pretentious section of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed. I always enjoy it, Andrea. It's a pleasure to do this with you. Let's go on to our next section. This is the part of the podcast where me and Andrea will both give this episode a rating. We will rate it on a scale of 1 to 13, 1 being the worst, 13 being the best, because there are 13 Doctors, but that is no way suggesting that the first Doctor is the worst and the 13th Doctor is the best, because that is simply untrue. We were allowed to give one decimal place as a mark, and that is an 8.5, aka a War Doctor. 
I, however, have not gone with an 8.5. I've gone with an 8 because overall it's a good episode. I think it's painfully average and it doesn't deserve the hype it gets. Wow, scathing review right there. I said it was average. I also gave this an 8. I deducted 15 points for all the flirting, taking me to minus 2. Then I added 5 for the cat, which we see briefly. What a cute cat. And then I added another five for John Barrowman. Not necessarily Captain Jack, but just the man, the myth, the legend that is John Barrowman. I'm glad we both took this section so seriously today. So am I. Well, I think that about wraps it up for this week. Join us next week when we talk about the second part of this two-parter, episode 10 of series one, The Doctor Dances. What episode name we're going to delve into next week? I have some thoughts. I bet you do. And please, if you did enjoy hearing Dean insult me and me just try to get on with my serious points, <laughs> if you did enjoy that, then please do follow us on Instagram at, at chattywattypod. We also have an email, chattywattypod at gmail.com. So if you have any thoughts on what we've said, anything you'd like us to discuss in a future podcast, please do send us your thoughts. And of course, we are on Anchor FM at Chatty Watty. So please do go follow us there and do go and listen to our previous episodes if you haven't yet. And if you have, you can always give them a second listen. Why not? Exactly. So thank you very much for listening to us and we'll hopefully see you next week. Well, we'll not see you or hear you, but you'll hear us. Hopefully. Please listen. Bye. Bye. <laughs>